Good morning. Get back to your chair before someone else takes it, right? All right. Well, hey, my name is Will. It's a privilege to be here with you this morning. A friend of mine before the first gathering asked me, Will, are you nervous? I thought, I'm a seven. Anyone get that? Sevens, right? The only thing I'm really nervous about is if my hair looks dumb, right? Because we're here this morning to look at God's word. We're here as a family, as a community, to open up the Bible and say, speak to us. So what do I have to be nervous about? God loves that prayer. God, speak to us. Show us your word. Um, this summer, if you've been going to Crossroads for a long time, you might feel like a, a tennis, like you're at a tennis match watching the ball go from the Old Testament to the New Testament to the Old Testament to the New Testament, which is something that we don't do here very often. If you're new here this morning, I'll say welcome and just kind of explain the reason that that feels so weird is because uh, we're a Bible church. What that means is typically we don't preach on themes, but we preach books of the Bible. We take large chunks of scripture and we just plow right through them, looking for every little nuance and every word, hoping to get everything that we can gleaned from that passage before we move on. Uh, For an example, one time we spent uh, from... The fall of 2014, that's when we started Luke's gospel. Does anyone know when we finished it? The summer, I heard someone say it, the summer of 2016. That's a year and a half in like 20 pages of the Bible. We, we love it. And that's typically how that love manifests for us on Sunday mornings, is by just plowing right through it. So now this back and forth seems a little bit strange, but I want to encourage you to keep with us because Um, what we're preaching on this summer has had so much traction in the pastors and the teaching team's hearts. It's got traction with us. And you get to hear this summer from a lot of people who normally don't get to have the mic and don't normally get to share the stage. People who are literally giving their lives over in service to this community now get the chance to share what God's been doing in their lives and the gospel and how it's working out. And so I'm excited about that. Before we get into our text for this morning, uh, I'm just going to pose a question because I think it's really important that this is foremost in our church and I want to help bring a little bit of clarity to it. So the question is, you don't have to shout anything out. I just want you to listen and hear this and allow it to impact you in a unique way. Uh, What is the gospel? I said, don't shout it out. (laughs) That's my whole point. Um, He said, good news. Uh, We're talking about what what do we mean when we use that word? What does the word gospel mean? We had a leaders meeting this week that lasted a couple days and we, we started using the word as a verb. Hey, let's gospel each other. Let's gospel our ministries and gospel our families. Well, what most of us are talking about when we use that word is this thing, it's a really succinct version, it's called the Romans Road to Salvation. Has anyone ever heard of that? Let's look at this slide. And you people over here won't, might not be able to see because this light is so perfectly placed that it's going to say Romans Road. The Romans Road to Salvation. I didn't know what it was. You know, I gave my life to Christ kind of when I was an adult And I was learning so much about this new life I had. 
learning so much about this love and this grace and this mercy that this man Jesus had for me. I was learning about his life, about my Savior. But this word kept circling, gospel, gospel, gospel. And I couldn't ever put my finger on what are we actually talking about. And uh, a friend of mine introduced me to uh, this Romans road. Just helping me kind of put it in, in words. The Romans road to salvation became a tool for me, not so much for other people, but just for myself to help understand what God has done for me. To help bring clarity to the, the bigger problem of sin and to help see really clearly uh, God's answer for sin. So we're going to walk through it together uh, just so we're all on the same page. Romans Road, it's five or six verses throughout the book of Romans that uh, we've chosen. Paul didn't say this is the Romans Road to Salvation. We've looked at it and said here's a pretty succinct version of the good news of Jesus Christ. It starts in Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, but not the whole thing. There's good news at the end of the verse, but it starts with bad news. And then you let that bad news linger a little while. The wages of sin is death. The thing that you get paid for, for all the sin that you've done, is death. Linger, linger. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That if you confess with your mouth and that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God has raised him up from the dead, then, then death isn't an option anymore. You're going to be saved from that death. That therefore, since uh, we have been justified through this faith, we now used to be enemies with God, but now we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And because of that peace, there's now, therefore, no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. And some other people add another verse or two, but really that's just flair. This is, this is it. This is the Romans road here. And it's a super helpful tool to have in your toolbox. And I encourage you all to take it down or you can just Google the Romans road of salvation and you'll find these same verses. But, or and, I don't know which. I would like to also submit this morning that the gospel cannot and should not be boiled down to simply these five verses in the Bible. We've already said it this morning, and my good friend Ken Lucas shared with us a few weeks back about how the word gospel, it's not an English word. It's a word that means two words, good news. Does anyone have any good news this morning? Yeah, where? What is it? Gospel, that doesn't matter. Okay, that, that's what I'm talking about. But like, come on, I just got a new dirt bike. That's good news for my life. Anyone else have any good news? Okay, shy people. Well, good news. Now, in the church context, Brett, in the church context, that good news is the gospel. It's salvation. It's the point of the Romans road. What's the point that we're getting at? The point is we deserve death. Enter Jesus, faith in him. We don't get what we deserve. We get life. That's the good news that we talk about in the church context. The good news is the Messiah, 
The one whom generations have been waiting for. God's promised one. The one that the prophets foretold. The good news is the man, Jesus, who gave his life for the sake of the world. Scripture calls this the power of God for the salvation of all who believe. And you can't take something that's powerful and vast and just boil it down to five verses. We want to see that power throughout the entire Bible, every page, not just the last four chapters of four narratives of Jesus' life. So this summer, we have a sermon series called The Gospel in Pictures. In Pictures. Not the gospel as a proposition. Not the gospel as a list of rules or a prayer that you pray, but a gospel as a picture, a subtlety, a nuance, a turning of the diamond and allowing new light enter in and shine out. It's a word or expression from God that communicates his heart for mankind to be whole or a compassionate act of Jesus to bring restoration to a person's life. And this is important because it should give you and I great permission to say that, yes, the gospel is the Romans' road, but it's also the story of your own deliverance. If you're not able to connect those two things, then I doubt that the gospel has really sunk into your heart. And that, the story of your deliverance, it's that one that ends up being what your family and your friends and your neighbors really need to hear you say. How is it that Jesus has transformed your life? The good news is that God is restoring all things, all of creation. And you and I get to be a part of that. Our gospel picture that I chose uh, this morning is in the New Testament in Luke 13. And it's the healing of this woman who has been suffering for a long time. In an instant, Jesus says, you're set free. So you can look in your Bibles uh, to Luke 13. We're going to stand for the reading of God's word. We're going to start in verse 10 and read through 17. All right, verse 10 says, On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues, and a a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She is bent over, and she could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her, and immediately she straightened up and praised God. Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue leaders said to the people, Hey, there are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days, but not the Sabbath. And I love how it says, The Lord. The Lord answered him. You hypocrites, doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie your ox or your donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? When he said this, all of his opponents were humiliated, but the people were delighted with the wonderful things he was doing. This is God's word. You can have a seat. There's so many things about this uh, passage that I personally love to the point where the more that I studied it, the more that I read about it, the less I wanted to preach it because I feel like it's one of those that has so many lanes. 
You know, you could go down the Sabbath lane. You could go down the uh, demonic oppression lane. You could go down the healing lane. But I kept coming back to this text because of how it really impacted my life just this past spring as I read through the Gospel of Luke. I don't know if you ever have that where you've, you're reading through a book of the Bible or you're reading something that's really familiar to you. You know how it starts. You know the middle. You know the end. But for some reason, the Holy Spirit just illuminates part of it to you that, that wasn't there before. This is what happened to me. As I was reading this text, my heart was struck by the compassion that Jesus has for this woman. And in that same exact moment, I couldn't help it. I just kept recalling the ways that I feel like Jesus has shown compassion to me. How his mercy has been real in my life. How his love has manifested in a real way in my life. And I just kept saying, thank you, God. And so I knew that I, I, I wanted to share this with you guys. So what we're going to do is we're going to uh, look at how the gospel is how Jesus takes this broken, needy, and bent low woman and he restores her because that is good news. So let's look at it. Um, this text has a couple different themes. I already said that. I want to focus my attention, our attention, on this woman whose back is healed. And specifically, I want to show you that Jesus does three things. He, he sees her, he heals her, and he affirms her. Let's look at verse 10 together. On a Sabbath day, uh, Jesus is in one of the many synagogues in the area, and he's teaching. And in this synagogue, at this time, Jesus is probably the one who's leading their Bible study, kind of like I am right now. He's the one that's expounding on God's word and, and teaching from the Torah. And sitting around him would be some elders, some men uh, in seats, a couple rows of them maybe. And then behind them, there would be some women gathered also. And so Jesus is teaching these people, and he, and he stops. He stops when he sees this woman. Maybe he's teaching, and his eyes are going across, and he stops. I love that the text says that he saw her because she probably would have been hard to see, actually. Here's this woman who slips in the back of the worship service. She's bent over. She's unable to stand up. She probably can't even sit normal. It's unlikely that she's drawing any attention to herself, but rather she's just blending in, maybe even lower than the rest of the people who are sitting. But Jesus sees her. In fact, God is in a habit of seeing people, seeing people that nobody else sees, individuals that the rest of the world just ignores or passes over. Listen to some examples. God sees Hagar and Ishmael in Genesis 16. God finds them out in the desert and he speaks blessing and life over them. When their masters, who are supposed to be like God's best friends, their masters sent them away, treated them poorly. And Hagar just is overwhelmed with emotion and says, I'm going to call you now. God, I'm going to call you not the God who blesses me. I'm going to call you the God who sees me. Elroy. Genesis 29 says that God saw Leah when she was unloved. Her husband was married to her sister, weird, but, uh, and her sister was beautiful. And it says she wasn't that beautiful. She was unloved, and God saw that she was unloved, and he opened her womb and allowed her to bear children. God sees Saul when he's hiding among the baggage after uh, his lot was chosen, making him Israel's first king. 
God sees David when both Samuel and his own dad, Jesse, ignore him and leave him out on the pasture tending sheep. God sees Gideon as he's hiding in the, in the well threshing uh, before the war. God sees Zacchaeus. Jesus sees him. Jesus sees Peter moments after Peter denies him three times. He sees Nathaniel from a distance sitting under a tree. See, God sees. Listen to the words from 2 Chronicles 16.9. The eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. That even now, his eyes are going throughout the earth back and forth looking for people whom he can strengthen. And think about this woman from our story. Jesus sees her. She's, again, not calling out to be healed. She's not crying out in pain. She's not running after him like other people do in the Bible. She says nothing. And you could probably guess that after 18 years of this painful oppression, it might cause her heart to grow cold. But here she is in the synagogue on the Sabbath, This woman whose heart is devoted to the Lord and now the same eyes that are going back and forth, they rest on her to strengthen her. And I know that it sounds Sunday school and I know that it's like not deep waters we're diving into, but I want you to hear something. God sees you. And I know what that does. It divides the room in half. Half of you are like, no, he doesn't. Nope. Nope, doesn't see me, doesn't see me. No, too much pain, too much hardship in my life. He doesn't see me. And the other half of you have allowed those eyes, like, like you've, you've submitted your life to the Lord and you've been vulnerable with him. And you've allowed him to see you. You've allowed the Holy Spirit to work in you and, and show you how God is seeing you. But I want to tell you, no matter what side of that line you're on, that God sees you. He sees your pain, he sees your heart, your worship, your devotion, your despair. He sees you. And I want to challenge you, if you feel unseen today, if you feel forgotten, looked over by the rest of the world, to speak that out to God. A lot of times we feel like you can't say those types of things to God. You can't be frank with him and upfront. But I want to tell you that God's a big boy. He can handle your frustration. The Bible is full of people who are real with God. And if you feel unseen by him, when's the last time you spoke that out? And said, God, I need you to see me. I need you to strengthen me, God. My heart is devoted to you. And your word says, I need you to see me. Be vulnerable with him. Ask him to lift your chin. Ask him to strengthen you. And I know that there's two sides of each coin that we're going to look at today. The other side of this is uh, there's a lot of people in this room, like myself, who are guilty of not seeing. Who just walk around like looking for people who look like us and act like us and dress like us and smell like us and make at least as much money as us and drive at least as nice of cars as us. Those are the people we want to be around. But I want to challenge you to say, are those the people that Jesus was attracted to, drawn to? Actually, the people that Jesus was was drawn to, they're people that ruined his reputation. 
I said that Jesus stopped teaching, but you can see clearly that he actually didn't stop, that he is teaching. He's teaching me that I need to have eyes to see the people that he would see. To have a heart that uh, looks beyond the appearance of things, the appearance of people. But to, be look, to look to be uh, shade and a glass of cold water to people who are really in need of it. And I want you to wrestle with that. How Jesus sets the standard so high once again in our text by noticing the people. And sometimes I get really like, uh, uh, just like deflated when I think about like another bar that Jesus is setting, another thing that I will never uh, attain to or live up to. And um, one of my favorite verses or like stories in the Bible is in Jeremiah 18 because I think it's the, the answer to that deflation and that problem. See, Jeremiah 18 has a story about God saying, hey, Jeremiah, go down to the potter's house and like look through his window or something. See, like watch what he's doing. And so Jeremiah goes and spies on this guy and it's a potter who's sitting at a potter's wheel. And he's got this, this clay and he's lifting the clay and, and maybe midway through making this pot, like something happens, which can happen really quickly if you're working with clay on a potter's wheel. It just kind of gets marred. The text says it was marred in his hands. And so what potters do when that happens is you can't, you can't recover from that. You can't like put it back together because the center of gravity is thrown off. And so the potter then took the clay and mashed it back down into a ball. Same clay. Recenters it. Spins the wheel. And can shape whatever he wants. This thing that used to be this marred, like worthless pot can now be a, a vase or a plate or a cup or a bowl. It can be something. And God said, like Jeremiah witnesses this, and God says to him, can't I do the same thing with the people that I've chosen and called by my name? Can't I in the same way take your life that's been marred or your heart that is cold in some way and shape it and form it into something that gives me great pleasure any way that I see fit? So I want to say if you, if you are in that place, if you have a cold heart or a heart that just overlooks the marginalized or if you're in a place where you're saying, uh, here's another standard that Jesus sets that I'll never live up to. Submit your heart to him. He's a really skilled potter. He knows what he's doing. He's trustworthy. He's the most trustworthy uh, one I know. Submit your heart to him. All right, let's keep going. Uh, verse 12. Jesus, again, stops his teaching, and he does something that is probably a little uh, awkward. He calls this woman forward. And she comes and she stands in front of all these men who must have been a little curious, if not frustrated, that the normal flow of their service has been interrupted. They're probably wondering what Jesus wants to do with this, like, this woman who is, who is maybe cursed from God. And she's standing there in front of all these people on display, unable to hide anything, completely bent over, unable to straighten up at all. I want you to think about that. I want you to picture that. And Jesus says to her the thing that her heart has wanted to hear for close to two decades. I don't know how the Spirit came upon her originally. 
The text doesn't really say. It's, it's clear that it's not like a disability uh, from a car accident or a pulled muscle or a fall, but it's that Satan has bound her. And you can probably think that this woman who, um, who felt that pain in her back for the very first time 18 years earlier probably thought to herself, this is not good. I need to get this looked at or I need to get this checked out. I need some help. She must have seen countless doctors. She must have sought help far and wide, spent endless amounts of money looking for an answer. She probably traveled if she could, as pain would allow, looking for someone, anyone to help her, to no avail. And a year went by without an answer. And maybe she lost a little bit more movement in her back. And another year, and she's more restricted. And year after year, the idea of freedom from this oppression slips further and further into the background of her mind. I can relate to that. And 18 years later, she probably stopped thinking about the idea of freedom. And there's Jesus. He says to her, woman, you're set free from your infirmity. I can't imagine what uh, thoughts or emotions must have been racing through her mind, what the synapses in her brain were doing when she heard those words and felt the hands of Jesus on her and she could stand up. It's amazing. The same power that Rod spoke about last week, the finger of God that touched Jacob's hip and destroyed it, is the same power that is racing through this woman's body. It's the same power that takes the prideful, the arrogant, the haughty, and it brings them low. And it takes the lowly, the humbled, the broken, and it raises them up. Imagine all the things that this woman had missed out on in those decades. She can't stand. She can't look her husband in the eye. She can't uh, hug her children. She can't cook. She can't sew. She can't stand outside at night and just look up to the stars. Every aspect of her life was affected by this spirit. And it just reminds me of John 10.10. That, that there's this enemy who comes to, to kill you, to steal from you, and to destroy your very life. That pretty much sums up uh, her last 18 years. And Jesus is more powerful than that. He sees beyond that and he restores her. He elevates her. He lifts her up. Do you know this morning that it's that freedom that Jesus brings the second half of that verse in John says that while the enemy hates you and kills you and, and steals from you and destroys you, guess what? I've come that I could bring you life and life abundantly. It's his mission. On a different Sabbath, in a different synagogue, the scroll is handed to Jesus. He opens it up to Isaiah 61 and he says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to preach the good news. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and to release of darkness for the prisoners. That's his mission. And he looks at these men who are in that synagogue and says, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. It's what he's doing. He's bringing uh, freedom from her captivity and he's mending her brokenness. Here's the thing. As good as it sounds, as good as that power looks, 
It's actually something that I've had to wrestle with a lot in my life. The idea, this concept that uh, Jesus heals, that the Spirit of God brings healing. Because I love that concept, and maybe like me, I'm just frustrated with the results. I've put my hands on countless people. I've prayed for people to be healed, but I've never seen this type of power in someone's life. And I was talking about that with my wife this past week, and we just started to kind of like question whether or not that was true. We looked back at the seven years that we've had kids now and how many times we've put our hands on our kids and prayed for them and seen them restored, seen their lungs opened up, see their sleep patterns change. Been on the way to the ER and prayed powerfully that God would heal this little girl, and he, and he did. How we've prayed for uh, brokenness in our own marriage and our coldness towards each other to be, to be thawed and for our marriage to come back together, and, and he, he does that. Just this week, I heard a story about a man who's in the hospital right here in Grand Rapids, and this man has zero hope. He's dead. Like, to all accounts, he's dead. He's on life support. And um, all week, there had been a 24-7 group of people who are in his room, on their knees, praying for his healing, praying that God would restore him. All week, they're just whispering under their breath prayers. God, heal him. God, raise him up. And it's important to be quiet in a room like that. It's important to keep the peace in a room like that, to not startle the patient, but um, his mom and, and his dad and the doctors are in this meeting. They're in a meeting uh, down the hall, and they're, pre- they're, they're discussing about really the end of his life, how in a few hours they're going to take him off his machines. And all along there's this nine-year-old boy, this man's son. And as one of the prayers was leaving, he held, the, the guy held up his Bible and said, hey, you believe in miracles? And the little kid said, yeah. While we want to say like, you know, heaven is great. Your dad's going to love heaven. This man said, do you believe in miracles? And the kid said, yeah. And so again, everyone's in the other room. They're, they're discussing about how they're going to uh, end this man's life. And they kind of say, um, all of a sudden this nine-year-old boy is alone in the room with his dad. And he just says to his dad, he's done being quiet. He says to his dad, Dad, it's time to wake up. And the dad, the dad opened his eyes. And, and the boy said, Dad, it's time to squeeze my hand. And the dad squeezed his hand. And he said, it's, Dad, it's time to move your feet. And he moved his feet. God's healing this man. He's not out of the blue yet, but something that was so devastating in his life. There's hope now because of the faith of that little boy. I want that faith. And I want that story to encourage you. What that story did in that hospital, it shook the whole place. And people's uh, surgeons and doctors are giving their life to the Lord. It sounds a lot like the first few chapters of the book of Acts. It's the kingdom of God calling death to life again. And I don't know, I'm with you. I don't know why God chooses to do that sometimes and chooses not to do that other times. But I do know that we can't look at the Bible and say that Jesus doesn't heal, that God doesn't heal, because he does. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
You know, it's encouraging that, that these 18 years, they weren't a mystery to Jesus. And this woman wasn't lost because of the amount of time that had passed. The power of God can, can go in that and through that. And maybe uh, you could use a little bit of this in your life too. Maybe you're not hurting in a physical way. But from an outward appearance, everything looks great. But what about inwardly? What about when you take that mask off? How's your heart? How are your relationships? How are your emotions? How are you spiritually? Are you in need of the finger of God to come in and, and touch your life? Is your heart in any way being weighed down and, and you could really use that power of God? The gospel this morning is that Jesus has been sent by the Father, anointed in his spirit to bring freedom for us. And even if it's been years and years, that power of God can still reach you. And whether it's physical or emotional or spiritual healing that you're in need of, the remedy is always the same. The book of James uh, puts it really simply. It says, your life, draw near to God. And God will draw near to you. Submit yourself to the Lord. And in due time, he'll, he'll raise you up. And I don't know if it's going to be in that moment. Because we can draw near to God on Sunday mornings. We can look for the Spirit of the Lord and go where it is to our, our friends who are safety for us and who will pray for us and lift us up before the throne room. Uh, our prayer and worship nights where we sing out his praise and seek the, uh, the gospel's manifestation in our church. Seek where the Spirit of the Lord is and be there. And if it's not today, if it's not tomorrow, we know at least that, that in the renewal of all things, God will look and he'll say, no more pain. No more suffering. No more tears will fall from your eyes. And in fact, the former things will, won't even come to mind anymore. Draw near to God and allow his healing to overcome your, my weak faith. We've seen how Jesus uh, sees this woman. We see how Jesus heals this woman. And now we're going to look at how Jesus affirms this woman. Take a peek at uh, verse 14. The story continues on. Um, this woman is, is praising God, and the synagogue leader stands up, and the text says that he's indignant. When's the last time you used the word indignant? I don't use it very often. So I look up uh, in the Greek what that word is translated to at other places in the Bible, and it says to grieve much or to become very angry. And I connect better with very angry. I know exactly what that feels like. And so um, I know really well how weird it is to have like awesome miracle, very angry. How does that happen in a, like it doesn't happen in my brain very easily. And so I'm wondering like what is going on with this man? Why is he fuming when this one woman is rejoicing? The text says it's because the day that he healed her, was a Saturday, the, the Sabbath, the Lord's day, the day that God mandated rest for his people. It's important to see kind of that this leader doesn't uh, get mad because of the healing itself like other times in the Bible. He probably knows that this was an act of God. 
He slanders Jesus and the woman for coming forward uh, and treating the Sabbath with contempt. He probably loved the healing. He actually said, listen, healing, great. Come, any other day, I'll heal you six days of the week. You know, come on down then. But not today. It's God's day. And there are a lot of things that Jesus could have retorted with. Like he probably had a thousand things going on in his mind in a way to teach this man, in a way to help a more full understanding of God's plan come to be. But I think it's genius how he just answers it with two simple questions. Doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie your ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give water? Now you guys say no to that question, but they would have said yes. Yeah, they do. Yeah, we do. Then he asks, uh, should not this woman then, this woman, this daughter of Abraham, who Satan has kept bound, tied up for 18 long years, shouldn't she also be freed on the Sabbath from what binds her? I'm reminded of how Jesus says uh, in Matthew 18, are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside the Father's care. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You're worth more than many sparrows. Jesus is affirming this woman in such a strong way, elevating not only her head, but her whole being. Taking a woman who has probably been treated like less than an animal for years and years, calling out her identity as a daughter of Abraham, as an image bearer of God, as a co-heir of all the great promises that God has made to his people, as one who will inherit the earth, as one who will literally see the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Jesus speaks words of life and value over here in the presence of those men. And in doing so, he teaches them that that. The Sabbath was not made for God, but that God made the Sabbath for us. A day to experience his rest, a day to experience his healing, a day to experience the freedom that God has when he enters our life, a day to be loosed from the things that have kept us bound. The synagogue ruler made the Sabbath day a day for God, but that's not something God ever intended. But Jesus, by seeing her, Healing her and affirming this woman makes that course correction. And as as hard as it is to see other people the way Jesus sees them, and as hard as it is to lay hands on them and pray for other people, I think the third thing that Jesus does is the most profound. He affirms her. He could have just raised, raised her up and let her walk out, but instead he washes all the shame off of her life. And for me, I think I say it's the hardest part because receiving affirmation is such a hard thing. Receiving words of life that pierce through like the lies of Satan and also like the years of like being mocked in like high school and stuff. Like all these things have built up this outer shell of like nothing good can enter in. No good word will ever take root in my life. Also, uh, giving affirmation. There's another hard thing, speaking life into my friends and family. I just want to say, are you guys, are we allowing the words of Jesus and the spirit-breathed words of the text to speak out our identity and our value? Because here's the thing, you, you will never find your identity and a sense of value 
on the internet. You can't do it. And the, the amount of likes that you get on something, it like, it like sends us soaring for a minute. Like, whoa, so many people have liked it. They're going to love this next one. Nothing. Find one person who feels a genuine sense of identity and security and love from people hitting a button. And next minute, scrolling right past. It's not a thing. We've tricked each other to say that that is a thing. I affirm you by pressing that little heart. It's not true. It doesn't work. The corner office will never do it. The bigger house will never do it. The higher paycheck will never speak value. You're valued because God says you are. You're valued because uh, Jesus laid his life down on the cross. Did you know that over and over in the New Testament, a blood-bought follower of Jesus is never talked about as garbage, trash. They're always affirmed. The blood-bought follower of Jesus, the one who's given their heart to the Lord, they're always talked about as saints, as children, as brothers and sisters. See, we expect Jesus to say that we're awful, that we're good for nothing, a waste, a failure. But instead, Jesus says, guess what? I'm actually not ashamed to call you guys my friends and my brothers. Some of us this morning need to hear that. And I have, uh, I printed off a few copies of this thing right here. It's a piece of paper, a very small writing on either side of it. And it's called 90 Statements from Scripture Describing Who I Am in Christ. Salt of the earth, light of the world, child of God, been called, been redeemed, been made one with God. Listen, there's a bunch of these up here. Look how nicely they fold. <laughs> right in your Bible. Allow the affirmation from God's word to sink deep into your hearts, into your life. If you feel like you're no good, if you feel like you're trash, then get his word. I'm sure that uh, this woman in our story didn't really feel like her identity was anything to get too excited about. But when Jesus heals her, Again, he, he, he not only heals her back, he heals her mind and her heart as well. He washes away all shame and judgment for, from her. He restores her whole self. He brings that life, abundant life. And just like the other examples from our text, uh, there's another side to that coin. How are we at speaking this life into and over each other? How are we at encouraging each other and lifting each other up with their words? Me, I'm bad at it. I used to, uh, more often than I do now, use sarcasm to tear other people down and build myself up. Do we treat our words like they actually carry weight? When you look at someone and you say something negative to them, do you know what it does? It brings, them, it brings us down. But if you can speak life, if you can speak God's heart, his word, his calling, it elevates. Romans 12 says, says it this way. He says, uh, you know what I want to see is I want to see the church outdoing one another and showing each other honor. 
And I want to challenge this church right now the same thing. Let's be a family of believers who honor each other really well, who speak life and love and identity over and into each other, who see the image of God in every person and calls it forward, who sees when people are living in a way that's contrary to their identity and says, not you loser, but hey, you're better than that. Stop. Live like someone who Jesus gave their life for. The good news of salvation through the death and the life of Jesus Christ is never meant to be an end to each individual, but rather it's the means in which the kingdom of God will advance throughout the whole earth. It goes into us so that it can go out of us into the darkness, into the brokenness of the world. In laying down his life on the cross, in taking on that woman's low, low place, Jesus gives us the power. He gives us the mandate. He fills us with his Holy Spirit, not only so that we can be healed, that we can be seen, and that we can be affirmed. That spirit power enables you to to see people where you didn't before. To heal people. To affirm people. I'm just going to end this morning. Uh, If you'd bow your heads and pray with me. I'm going to read from Psalm 146. It'll be my prayer. So praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, my soul. I will praise the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to my God as long as I live. Do not put your trust in the princes and human beings who cannot save. When their spirits depart, they return to the ground. And on that day, their very plans come to nothing. Blessed are those whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is the, is the Lord their maker. He is the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. He remains faithful forever. He upholds the cause of the oppressed and he gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoner free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down low. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the foreigner. He sustains the father and the widow. And he frustrates the way of the wicked. The Lord reigns forever. Our God, O Zion, for all generations. Praise the Lord. So I don't really have anything like eloquent to say to you guys other than this, that that my life has been uh, shaped by God. Like the more and more I give over my heart to him, the more and more I realize shortcomings in my character when I read about his standards, the more I've seen him to be a faithful, skilled potter who's willing and able to take that, that willing heart and shape it and mold it. And so I want to encourage you, wherever you're at this morning, submit yourself to that potter. The other thing is, I just want to mention again that these things are up here, these 90 statements of who I am in Christ. Don't be ashamed to come and grab one of these and stick it in your Bible, okay? Have a great week. We'll see you next weekend.